Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations or corporations. One and a half hours of the union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. Good morning, everyone. Yes, we're back. This is Annie and Kim. We're here on Solidarity Breakfast morning. That's right. And we've got lots of things to uh, share with you. We were Last week was uh, Disability Day and uh, it was also the anniversary of the Eureka Stockade, which, uh, as we all know, is uh, the inception of uh, white Australia's pushback from, uh, well, it was colonial rule, but it's actually political uh, oppression in, within our shores. Not that anybody would be particularly be aware of that, I guess. They don't like to collect, they put those two words together. Well, do you remember when Howard tried to claim Eureka? Ah. It's hilarious. Yeah, that's outrageous. And it's also very interesting when you go to that town, Ballarat, it's absolutely covered in uh, evidence of how people make commercial mileage out of and identify with the Eureka event. But uh, as I said in uh, the Stick Together show, uh, when uh, the uh, stalwarts walk through town, because they do an almost uh, Stations of the Cross uh, event that starts at four o'clock in the morning, and it's a long day for those people, they uh, go. It goes to Bakery Hill, which is uh, at uh, which is um, where the big meeting happened before, where they burnt their uh, licences and. Uh, There were 10,000 people came to that meeting in 1854, which isn't that interesting? Yeah. I remember going there and seeing the flag. Yeah. Seeing the flag, which is barely a flag. Mm. (laughs) It's sort of an incomplete flag. They just gave away bits of it, did they? Or people ran off with bits of it. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's fairly old. but It is it, like the cross, you know, the little pieces of the cross, everyone. Yeah, yeah, it. taking bits and pieces. Uh, but anyway, the uh, apparently when they then go down to the graves of the uh, fellows who were killed, uh, each year they have to weed the uh, graves because uh, they are ignored. There's uh, something very odd going on there in the... Uh, the uh, consciousness of the Australian uh, population when it doesn't... Uh, and, I, and, of course, this is reflected in its uh, it, uh, relationship with Indigenous peoples. Guilt. It's called guilt, actually. 
<laughs> yeah, but anyway, by the by, it was a. I was there for a certain amount of the time there, and it was a very interesting day. And uh, encourage people to put it on their calendar for uh, going there next year because uh, it's uh, it's a. Uh, it was lovely to be amongst people who uh, are activists and uh, maintain the flame. It was really lovely, actually. Yeah. What are we doing on Solidarity Breakfast today, Kim? Lots of things. <laughs> yeah, we're taking you to uh, uh, Spain and we're taking you to Italy because two uh, big events have been going on there. So we got to talk to Dick Nicol and he's given us a rundown of the pol- politics in Spain, uh, which <laughs> was very interesting because they've had three elections and uh, in the end they have a minority government of the PP party, which is basically made up of the remnants of the old fascists. But anyway, he gives us an idea of what's been going on since uh, the uh, political landscape has been uh, divided into four instead of the usual two. And we're going to be talking to Dr Noah Basile about similar issues. Yes, we are. It's coincidentally. And uh, then we're going to, and also we're going to talk about some of the victories that have happened over the week. Of course, Kevin's going to join us with This Is The Week That Was. This is the last This Is The Week That Was because Ke- that, that sluggard's going off on holidays. He, he did his last city limits this week and uh, so he puts up his feet after this week until next year. And uh, so, but we don't. We're going to be here live next week and then we go into summer programming. Got lots of goodies for you for summer programming because uh, I've been out collecting information and so have other people. And so instead of the best of, I think quite a few of the programs is going to be new material. So that's impressive. Oh, I'm impressed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget. But today, something else is happening. Workers of the world unite. In this climate of divide and conquer, it's time for us to take to the streets and defend multiculturalism and diversity. Victoria Trades Hall and a coalition of trade unions are organising a global street party and you're invited. Saturday the 10th of December. Rallying at the State Library at 12pm, then marching to Trades Hall for a street party on Ligon Street. There'll be bands, rides for the kids, music and tonnes of food. There'll also be some political forums about race, racism and how to fight back. This event is brought to you by Trades Hall, NTEU, the ETU, the AMIEU, the AMWU, the CWU, the ASU, Geelong Trades Hall, Ballarat Trades Hall and Australia Asia Worker Links. Workers of the world are united and will never be defeated. For more information, contact Matt Kunkel on 0405 748 242. Global Street Party, Saturday the 10th of December. State Library at 12pm. A 3CR supporter. And of course that's today. Yes. <laughs> it's not a hugely future event. It's 12 o'clock today. Very, Our- very current. Very current indeed. But anyway, let's kick off. We'll uh, hear from Dick Nickel. Dick Nickel is actually the uh, so- uh, Socialist uh, Alliance reporter, European reporter for the Green Left Weekly. So uh, I should probably let you know that. So here we go. Basically what has happened is that you had the big movement which started in 2011, which was uh, the Indignado movement, what is known as the 15M movement here. And that uh, 
was a very powerful social protest against austerity, uh, against you know huge increase in unemployment levels, no future for young people especially. And then that became, found its political expression in Podemos, this party called Podemos, which is called We Can, which means we can. And <clears throat> that party is now running at all that party and parties which in and alliances in which it participates is now running at 20 to 24% in the polls. Uh, at the same time, you've got the formation of a sort of anti-Podemos, a counter to that, a sort of right-wing version of that, which is a thing called Citizens. So you've now got two parties to the right, the old uh, People's Party, which is the continuation of the, uh, you know, the Francoist dictatorship here, and then you've got the Socialist Party, the Socialist Workers' Party of Spain, which is like our Labour Party in Australia, and now you've got Podemos. So what you've got is a sort of double contest. You've got the contest between left and right, um, but you've also got the contest now with now that you've got four parties uh, within the right uh, and within the left. And the most serious conflict really is the fight for hegemony, for leadership uh, within the left between the Socialist Party and Podemos. And the most uh, dramatic event recently was the sacking of the leader of uh, the Socialist Party, um, Pedro Sanchez, uh, because he was prepared to consider forming a left government. Uh, a, with a properly Podemos. left government, yeah, a properly and, left government. And the, uh, and the powers that be in the in the in the PSOE weren't going to uh, cop that, so they arranged for him to be sacked. Now, is this something that uh, exposes the fundamental corruption or power sharing that is going on behind the scenes? Yes. No. I think. Uh, yeah. Yes. Exactly. I think what what this whole period has shown is that the two party establishment, which was the old uh, People's Party, the Soviet establishment, uh, had a sort of just a, a, a game which they organised between themselves. Uh, they were, of course, competing ferociously for power, um, for government between themselves, yeah, but they weren't going to have any uh, newcomers come on the scene if that could be avoided. And this is, that has all fallen apart now uh, with this, this four-party system. And there's an additional complication, this being Spain, there's always an additional complication, uh, which is, of course, that the national question in the Spanish state, particularly based in Catalonia, is now the biggest issue, really. It's the biggest underlying issue, and that you have a regional government in Catalonia that is pro-independence, which was voted in uh, in September 2015 and is driving ahead with its plans for independence against uh, a central government in Spain, which is now a People's Party government, a minority People's Party government, but supported by the PSOE machine uh, to never grant, not to grant uh, a referendum to Catalonia along uh, the lines of the Scottish referendum. Yeah, it's been brought to my attention by a person who actually lived in that area that uh, Catalonians believe themselves to be and there's evidence of it, be they're wealthy and that they are carrying the rest of Spain. Is that a, is that a true-ism? That's, that's, one, that's certainly one um, a- attitude and one quite powerful attitude. And with that attitude, you would say, is shared a bit with the Lega Nord, the Northern League in, in Italy, 
but it's not the majority sentiment. Um, the, the Catalan majority, social majority sentiment is uh, quite left-wing, very progressive. It's the most progressive part of Spain, probably the most progressive part of, of Europe. So on all sorts of issues that are sort of measures of how progressive you are, like on questions of sexuality, uh, gay rights, women's rights, uh, attitude towards refugees, all these sort of touchstone issues, um, Catalonia is well to the left of uh, the rest of Europe. I mean, I could tell all sorts of stories about that, but the pro-refugee movement in Catalonia, for example, is very, very powerful to the point that the government here, the regional government, uh, has offered 4,500 places for you know Syrian and other refugees, but they've got all the infrastructure and housing, uh, special housing, etc., prepared, and this is especially so in Barcelona, but uh, the central Spanish government, of course, is in charge of who, who comes into Spain and they're not let, letting anybody in or they're letting them in uh, in such a way as that the whole thing is just very, very slow uh, to sort of try and dissuade people from applying to coming to Spain. So I'm trying to answer your question. There is a right-wing... What I was really getting at is this yeah. uh, idea that if Catalonia was to leave... Uh, then in actual fact they would actually have stability and uh, economic uh, ability to to sustain themselves while the rest of Spain might wither on the vine. I mean, I'm wondering because the reason why I'm posing it that way is because it's quite clear that there are quite greedy elements, greedy for power, greedy for financial power, uh, but it's all very well to be greedy, but if there's no cake to eat. Oh no! There's a there's a, no Catalonia is the part of Spain that is growing rap- most rapidly. It has a, a most diverse economy, and it could survive no problem at all. Right, that's what I wanted it to could, know. That, yeah, no, no, that's. I'm sorry, I didn't understand your implication. Was no, yeah, that's, no, it, and, that's, and I'm quite interested in this uh, business about. Uh, it appears that uh, the pool pool by Podemos has uh, fractured the. Uh, legislative uh, or uh, democratic, in inverted commas, arrangement that uh, they've got going there uh, because actually the uh, splinters of the old fascist regime has got back in. In fact, I love this uh, quote that you've put in your paper, your article, um, a judicial investigation into PP operations in the Valencia country has described the party as a conspiracy to commit criminal offences. <laughs> I just yes. think that's well, just fantastic. Well, you, you touched on quite a few things there. I mean, the PP is many things. It is the continuation. A lot of the PP are people coming out of the old Francoist regime. Um, the big difference between Spain and the rest of the Mediterranean states is that it was the one place where fascism was not overthrown, as it was in Portugal, right. as it was in Italy, or the military dictatorship in Greece, uh, here it was there was a negotiated agreement, and basically what happened there was that l- large parts of the institutions remained under the influence of people who had came directly from the Francoist dictatorship, especially the judicial system. Uh, the army was cleaned up, and the armed forces were cleaned up after a failed coup back in 1981. But you have a judicial system and you have an establishment that is still very, very strongly tainted. 
I mean, a, a good example, a, a sort of good little indication of this is that um, Spain, after Cambodia, is the place with the greatest number of unmarked mass graves mm. of any country in the world going back to the Civil War. There's a movement to try and identify, try and open up all these graves, try and identify via a DNA methods uh, who, who is in these graves so that, you know, families can finally be at peace and know where their fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers uh, finally ended up after they disappeared. I mean, this is work that is done in Argentina and Chile after the dictatorships there. Why can't it be done here? But, for example, the judicial establishment here has ruled that any attempt to do this via the Argentinian judicial system will not be collaborated with. So you, you, you're dealing with these die-hard elements, pro-Francoist elements, that, that still have some quite a large impact. What's really interesting here at, at the, this moment in history is that the PP get back in power and it's the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party that's being exposed as a... Uh, an organisation that's f uh, ready to fracture and explode? Well, it's it's complicit. The, the, the that's right. Pessoa is, is split down the middle. The Pessoa is split down the middle between the, the people who are pro-Spanish centralist, that is to say they feel the major threat to be fought uh, is not the threat of poverty or not the threat of, you know, the de de uh, decline or degeneration of the welfare state, but the threat from Catalonia, the national yeah. question. This yeah. is what is critical to understand in the Spanish state. If you don't understand the, the national question here, then you, you don't understand anything because it's, you have a, a, multi, uh, a multicultural, multinational state where... A lot of people, millions of people, feel themselves to be Catalans before Spanish, oh. equally Catalan and Spanish, Basques before Spanish, equally Basque before Spanish, and where they what they want the right to self-determination. That doesn't necessarily mean that they would vote, a majority would vote for independence, um, but it does mean that people feel that they are not Spanish and they have a right to decide their, their future as a nation. And this yes. is... So where does, where, does Perdom, where does Perdomus fit in this? Well, Perdomus supports the right to self-determination. That's, that's the big change here. Neither the PSOE, nor the P, certainly not the PP, but the PSOE says it's federalist. <laughs> but it's, it's, its federalism is really a, a sort of half-hearted, disguised form of Spanish centralism because it denies the right to self-determination, absolutely. Um, but it's split, as I say, part of this split that has took place uh, about whether you would allow a left government in Spain and whether they would ally to their, to the, with Podemos was precisely over this issue of the right to self-determination. All oh, right. Uh, does, do, does, do people think that uh, if they've got self-determination that poverty will be reduced and there will be better outcomes for youth, employment, etc.? Well, especially, yeah, in Catalonia, yeah. Yeah, right. In Catalonia. And this takes a a pretty blunt form, which is, you know, there's a permanent debate about how much money, taxation funding, leaves Catalonia every year. And, you know, everybody comes up with their own figures. But basically it's admitted that Catalonia is uh, transfers up to $16 billion a year to the Spanish state, the coffers of the Spanish state. Okay, there are arguments about whether it's $16 billion or $12 billion and, you know, 
arcane arguments about national accounting and stuff like that. But it's not. It's you can't lot. deny that. that that's it's the a case. Lot. Uh, <laughs> and does does that mean that uh, you don't expect or people don't expect that uh, Spain will be in a holding pattern because that's obviously the outcome of the elections, but actually something else is going on in terms of the people and uh, well, what they want? What we, What's going to happen here, Annie, is that we're heading towards a sort of huge conflict. Uh. Between the Catalan regional government, which has said it's going to have a ref, it said to the Spanish state, "We are going to ask you for the last time uh, for the right to have a Scottish-style referendum, where we and you agree on that the Catalonia can have a referendum, which they can actually have under the Spanish constitution, despite the fact that the Spanish government said, "Oh no, that would be unconstitutional. That's bullshit." Under Section 92 of the Spanish Constitution, they can allow a regional uh, consultation, referendum, uh, plebiscite, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so that's the, they've said, this is the, your last chance to say that. If you don't do that, then we will have a Catalan referendum done under Catalan legality. Uh, and this is the slogan. The slogan from here is either referendum or referendum. I mean, either we do it, either we do it with you or we do it without you. Yeah, right. Now... That's now the Spanish government is now manoeuvring uh, to s- try and sound as if it has a change of tone um, <laughs> towards Catalonia. You know, more consultative, more di- you know, just more di- consultative, more disposed to dialogue. But that's all just manoeuvre. That's just a nice face. Uh, at the same time, you've got previous uh, heads of the Catalan government up on charges for allowing a consultation back in two thousand and fourteen. Uh, you've got the head of the Catalan Parliament uh, up on charges for allowing discussion of legislation which were prepared, which prepares this sort of roadmap towards independence. Uh, so you've got this sort of velvet glove, more velvet glove, but the approach. iron fist is more vicious than ever. Yeah, it's quite vicious. And this is what uh, this is what will determine Spanish politics and Europe. This will have an effect on Europe, European politics. Calling all supporters of refugee rights. Join the Refugee Action Collective for the Human Rights Day fundraiser on the 10th of December at the Reverence Hotel Footscray. Come and enjoy some of Melbourne's best music, comedy and performance poetry. Your support helps with costs of future RAC campaigns for refugee rights. Check out the Reverence Hotel's website for details. Tickets are $15 or $10 concession. Refugee Action Collective is a 3CR supporter. If you want life, you want love, you want hope, you've got to fight for it. You want freedom, you want justice, you want peace, you've got to fight for it. Oh, that's such a great um, tune. Uh, you've got, if you want freedom, you've got to fight for it. Yes, you can only take it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, you're not giving it. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and it's uh, 3CR, 8.55am. And as the comedians would say, I don't need to tell you that because you should already know it. And we've just been listening to Dick Smith. Oh, sorry, <laughs> not Dick Smith. Oh, Thank that would God. Be, that would be just too horrendous. Especially at this time in the morning. Yeah, it's right. <laughs> What's wrong with that man? Um, anyway... <laughs> 
Nationalism is the virtue of the vile and the vicious, and I think that that applies to Europe as well as Dick Smith. Yeah, exactly right. Maybe that's why the Freudian slip. Anyway, uh, Dick Nickel, who uh, lives in Barcelona and he's a, uh, he's a freewheeling uh, journalist, but effectively who looks at the uh, uh, rise and fall of uh, various elements, but from a leftist point of view. And he was able to... Uh, give us a view of what's going on in Spain. Now he's going to give us a little bit of a view of what's going on in Italy because also there's been great movements going on there. We only get little bits and pieces on our media here about this. But, uh, of course, we've got to remember that Europe uh, as an economic engine is, uh, is incredibly influential on uh, the future of uh, the world, actually. Uh, they are in control of something like 30% of the GDP of the world. Well, that's why they all banded together to form a block against all the United States. That's exactly right. Now it's all falling apart. All falling apart. <laughs> all falling apart. Good on you, Cameron. Yeah, the best, the best um, plans made by mice and men. Let's go to Italy because uh, they were having this uh, referendum around changes yep. to uh, Senate arrangements, which failed, and then became the uh, leader of the, the of the country had to bow out because he foolishly tied his fate to the referendum. Can you tell us what the left thought of the changes that were being mooted for the Senate? Oh, the left in was opposed to the referendum, opposed to the changes. I mean, this this was a, it's sort of a bit hard to explain. What this was, was a referendum which was so complicated, had so many proposals, it, it changed 40, I think it was 47 of 139 articles uh, of the Constitution. And it was done not as a, on the basis of a new constituent assembly, but ran through by a majority uh, in the in the parliament, and a majority elected on the basis of a the worst undemocratic, most undemocratic ele- uh, electoral law in in Europe. That is to say, uh, the process of doing this, irrespective of what you thought of the actual proposals, the process was totally undemocratic. So you have a government which has got 54% of the seats but was elected with only 29% of the vote. Uh, Why does it end up with that? Because you've got this big gift to the party that gets the relative majority. Uh, That was found to be unconstitutional by the the Constitutional Court in Italy. Um, But nonetheless, they didn't order that there be new elections. Uh, So then this government, which is of questionable, at the the least, at the very least, questionable legality, uh, then pushes through this proposal to completely change the Constitution. Now, some of the particular issues in this constitution, some of the particular proposals, like reducing the size of the Senate um, or allowing more possibility of referendum and citizen-initiated bills in Parliament, etc., these were acceptable, uh, shown to be acceptable to a majority by various opinion polls. But you had to vote everything. You know, it was take it, take it all or leave it all. Uh, and the other things that were included were things like uh, the, the reduced Senate, the new Senate, uh, would not be elected directly. And a majority of people, including those who were, were inclined to vote yes, said, no, we're opposed to that. Uh, so in the end, what happened was that you had this coalition for no, 
some of this coalition is, is is very nasty people, you know, right-wing xenophobic people like the Northern League. But the majority of the left, uh, just all of them, the left as a whole could not vote for this thing. They just couldn't vote for it. I mean, I have quite a few Italian friends who said, uh, you know, you don't like voting alongside the Northern League and people who come from, from fascism. But what this... What this re uh, reform would have introduced would have been a, a system whereby there will be an election every five years, a winner-take-all election, so the elections would have been basically a plebiscite on which leader you like, and then they would run the country for the next five years. So, so uh, Mussolini-style so arrangement. That was, mm, so that was a victory for democratic rights. The fact that the no what, one. Why, what was, was he aiming to do? What, what what were they aiming for? I mean, why did they? <laughs> what, they're, what they're aiming for was to be able to introduce neoliberal, basically sort of Thatcherite program much more efficiently, and they identified the Constitution, which came out of the struggle against fascism in the Second World War, as the major impediment to you know operating a sort of uh, you know Thatcherite. Or Blair, more Blairite than Corporation. crash through or crash uh, on uh, labour rights, privatisation, all the items that are in the standard neoliberal agenda to increase the competitiveness of the Italian economy. Um, so basically, they've been chipping away at labour rights, uh, the rights of regional governments. Um, uh, against state-owned, publicly-owned enterprises, etc., etc., they've been chipping away for thirty years uh, in Italy against this stuff, uh, but they've never been able to achieve a sort of Thatcher-style breakthrough or a Reagan-style breakthrough. And Renzi thought that, given his the big vote they got, he got back in the European elections, which is a very high vote for Italian politics of over forty percent. Um, that now was the chance. This was the one chance to really do, to, to, to introduce these sort of, you know, changes to the Constitution that would f clear the road for the application of the neo neoliberal policies, particularly in the area of the labour market. So, uh, it was, so we, we should all be grateful to see the back of the filthy lot? We should be grateful that no one, um, but then there's a, the, the big challenge now is, to make sure that it's the left that inherits that and not the right wing. This yeah. is the big problem mm. because who's crowing most about this is uh, right. the Northern League and then you've got also Beppe Grillo's five-star movement, which is neck and neck with the governing party, the Democratic Party and the polls. And the five-star movement is right wing one day, left wing the next. You don't know where they are. Uh, so the, the, the reason this one, I think the underlying reason this one, and people tell me this, is that there was a mass movement for no, which was built up from below, independent of the parties. I say yeah. that, you know, everybody said, oh, well, this is a victory for Grill Law and the Five Stars and it's a victory for the Northern League. Um, but the, probably the reason it actually won so much by so much was that there was this mass self-organised movement for no, which involved... 700 different groups around across Italy and also overseas, um, and which was the core of the actual mobilisation of people. You know, the, the reason the, the arguments for the no got out there and convinced people was because in you know nearly every city and town of any size in Italy, there was a group of people 
who are out there saying, no, we can't, you can't vote for the yes, this is what it really means, uh, and arguing the case. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really and a this good is, sign. Yeah, no, that's fine, and that's right. That was, this is the reason it won, and you had um, uh, you know, a huge, uh, very high participation. I think it's just under 70% was the participation. That's very good. Which was double the participation for the last constitutional referendum. Mm-hmm. So it means that people didn't just uh, oh, yeah, go out and vote because you don't have to vote. Uh, they went out determined to stop this thing. Yeah, they were switched on. That's great. That's good and that, news. And that was, that was so, even though the right is crowing, this was our victory, um, and really it was the victory, if you want to put it this way, it was the victory of people mobilised around the question of democratic rights, defending the democratic rights, enshrined in the Constitution, and they're enshrined there because the Constitution came out of the resistance movement against uh, fascism during the Second World War, Um, and people wanted to stick with that. Right, okay. They wanted to defend that, and I think that that's that's the basic story here. Uh, And the only, in all of Italy, there are 20 regional regions, I think it's 20, 21, Um, but only three, and only three did uh, the yes get up. Who where were in, they? In the, in the south, the vote the vote oh. was overwhelmingly against. Oh. Like in Sardinia, I think it was seventy five percent to twenty five percent, or something like that. What, which were the ones that were for it? Uh, in the central Italy, in Tuscany and Emilia Romagna, yeah. and in Trentino Alto Adige, up in the north. Those are the strongholds of the Democratic Party in uh, the centre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. If you didn't know what was going on in Spain and Italy, you do now. And as I said, it's a fairly important issue amongst all the other important issues that are going on at the moment. So thank you, Dick Nickel in Barcelona, for giving us a lowdown. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. You're on 3CR. uh, with, uh, And we're going to talk victories. Yay for us. Yes, there's been a few victories, haven't there, over the last week? There have, and you got the scoop. Yeah, I did. Actually, that's very interesting. You, you'll have heard my interview with uh, Troy Gray, for the Victorian Secretary of the ETU, who has been one of the major negotiators with MBEV uh, regarding the CUB 55. You'll remember the story, of course, that the 55 workers were uh, skilled workers. This is very important. They were skilled workers. These were terribly important fitters and turners and electricians. Uh, there were three unions involved, There were, but the main ones were the ETU and the AMWU, uh, but also there were CFMEU workers as well in that building, and uh, so there were supports from them. But uh, it is uh, interesting, they were, um, there's been a long, the, the, it's, it's very interesting because th- those people were being employed by a, a labour hire company. And uh, so they, the company had already distanced themselves from direct employment. But uh, what they did then was uh, drop the contract with that labour hire company with the wages and conditions that had already been established 
and they were also uh, told overnight that they were no long their service were, services were no longer required, and a new lot were brought in, and uh, the uh, workers were invited or told to go to a meeting at a hotel. Uh, uh, around uh, what was going on. They were basically fired then. Uh, they were told that they were fired and uh, they, the new contracts were uh, 65% less of their wages, uh, existing wages, and, of course, reduced conditions. And uh, they needed to sign up if they wanted to continue to work, and that's where it all began. Uh, yeah, Very interesting because I think as well what the company did technically not illegal, which should be, no. But it was interesting that basically the Victorian public decided, you know, it didn't matter how much the company got jumped up and down and crowed about how what they were doing was actually legal. Nobody cared. They decided it wasn't. Yeah. Well, it's not fair. It's not fair. It's exactly. not right and just. But I, I find it interesting when they, you know, usually the law is on their side, but it gets to a point where it's not really about the law. It's about the class forces. Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, that you should say that the saying that uh, if you're uh, if you're fighting for something that is right and it's illegal, then you are being r- governed by criminals. That saying has been appeared appearing on Facebook regularly these days, as people evaluate the system that we're under at the moment, because of course people like law and order. They actually like an orderly life as a general rule, and it would not, the system would not work at all unless at least ninety six percent of the people decided that they were going to follow the rules. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of a quote from Breck, which I'll just paraphrase, but, you know, what's robbing a bank to setting up a bank? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, well, there you go. Um, who said people on the left don't have a sense of humour? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, my scoop was that uh, I went down to the CUB Spirit of Eureka uh, uh, celebration. So, because of course the spirit of Eureka people deliver, uh, they came and uh, talked to the organisers because they could see direct connections between the Eureka Stockade fight and uh, the CUB fifty five fight, and they actually had a ceremony and gave uh, medals to the fifty five down there on that Thursday morning, and I got to speak to uh, Troy Gray, and I was the only piece of media down there, of course. And uh, he went and spoke first to the men and then he came back and he had a chat. And as he said, he didn't give me the details, but he was very happy. And so my scoop was uh, kept quiet to the chest because stick together doesn't come out until the Wednesday. But coincidentally, it was uh, announced that the victory was on and CUB uh, had... uh, 55 had actually been reinstated and the, at the exist at the same salary and uh, conditions. Now, what's really important is that right across Australia, skilled workers uh, are being asked in a variety of places uh, that are especially in the resources area and uh, and other sort of traditionally uh, but skilled blue collar work uh, being asked by multinationals to uh, being told that their salaries are uh, unsustainable, right? And Mm -hmm. the magic figure of 65%, 
You know, the 65% is the same figure that if you go around Melbourne and you see those uh, apartment buildings that are being built, all the signs on the outside of them, because I've started to realise that all of the signs say them, they say 65% sold off plan. (laughs) Right, it's a magic figure. It's It's a magic figure. It's quite a bit above halfway. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I know. And then I was speaking to a lawyer mate of mine, and I'm not sure all lawyers have mates, but he was saying that uh, uh, that there's this interesting thing about buying off the plan, because if the time frames don't match up, the people who have already put their name down for these things, if the building isn't finished by a particular time, they can actually lose their investment. Did you know that? No. Isn't that shocking? Oh, right. Well, because of all the fines that can be levied against No, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But you see, it's all about contractual arrangements. You know, you pay this certain amount for this particular time frames and all this sort of stuff. And if it doesn't reach, isn't reach completion by a certain date, then these other things are brought into force, which, of course, as we know, that does make sense, doesn't it? The developer can find them incredible amounts of money if they don't do it on time, which is... Anyway, victories, victories, victories. This is a very important touchstone moment in uh, working um, battles, but it's the beginning of the big battle because right across Australia, we have a government that didn't and doesn't support workers doesn't matter what you say, the war is on and uh, they are trying to make sure that uh, we are at a race to the bottom when it comes to workers' rights and workers' safety and workers' salaries and conditions. Mm. I haven't noticed rents going down. I haven't noticed mortgages going down. I haven't noticed... Mikey's going up. Yeah. Mikey's not just going up, it's going up higher than the inflation rate and it's going to be $8 something. Just incredible. I mean, they actually are going to have a problem with people living in the inner city because it's actually cheaper to drive. It'll end up being cheaper to drive. You know, it reminds me of a story of when I was living in Warrnambool and the Sudanese workers, uh, Sudanese people began to resettle down there. One of the uh, people who did good works and helped out with the uh, community support for the Sudanese workers uh, discovered that there was a young boy who had to arrive at a particular place at a certain time, a Sudanese boy. He would start at four o'clock in the morning because they didn't have a car and there was no way of getting to where he had to get to at the right time unless he started walking at four o'clock in the morning. That's incredible. It's starting to become really unreliable as well. Even if there are services, you can't tell whether the train will turn up, whether they'll actually, whether you'll be left on the platform. I've experienced this quite uh, yes. know, lots of times. Yes, um, because they've got uh, they've got a, <laughs> that business about change. You say, oh no, we're not doing that because uh, we've got to uh, follow. They've got to follow. They've got these KPIs that they have to follow, uh, and uh, it's unachievable. So they change. 
So everybody who's left on the station, oh my God, our train's not coming because it doesn't fit into a KPI. It's all pretty funny stuff because it's one of those things where the real world is interrupted by the administrative overlay. It's very funny. I think it's quite... It's, I don't you know, find Kafka it that lives. funny. <laughs> Kafka lives. <laughs> <laughs> You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. Um, oh, it's interesting you should bring up public transport because the RTBU are pushing for, in Victoria, are pushing for the um, uh, the public transport system to go back into public hands and they maintain it will improve the service and uh, make it uh, more uh, economical. I filled out their survey. You can do the survey online. And I left a completely pointless but very strongly worded comment to the transport minister it was completely indulgent but yeah it started off with you know the public transport system is an embarrassment to the people of victoria and anyway got worse after that but that was just because i was angry yeah well that's right and so you pointless. should be pointless <laughs> um the other victory that has come on a fantastic victory is of course lex watton's victory lex watton from palm island who was uh, caught up in you know the death of uh well he he's actually um he was known as uh, a particular name when he was uh, Cameron, Cameron yeah. but his name is now Mulrunji um i don't know what that means and i'm not even sure if we should be mentioning his name because i'm not sure of the cultural protocols but this poor fellow was gathered up in the morning uh, on Palm Island and within an hour of being taken to the watch house he was drunk in the morning he was he wasn't actually doing anything um untoward uh, if you actually follow the story he was actually just ambling through town and you know I can't say that um, the town in Palm Island is uh, you know a grand metropolis or anything and it's not as if if you've ever lived in a country town, it's not as if you wouldn't know each other. <laughs> anyway, he ambled around doing whatever he was done. He was collected up by the cops, taken to the watch house, and within an hour he was dead. There you go. What a, what a great morning he had and the rest of his family as well. It then caused uh, people that, uh, a public ruction, as you'd expect, and uh, Lex Watton uh, was uh, gathered up and uh, he was uh, targeted as a uh, person who was supposed to have caused the mayhem and the riot, caused the riot and the ultimate burning down of the police station. In fact, I, I, I've got an interview with Lex uh, where he actually details his whole day leading up to that event. Um, so I might actually play it again on Solidarity Breakfast over the summer season so that you can hear the words of Lex Watton uh, as he describes what happened. And in actual mm. fact, Lex wanted me to... He sat there and told me the whole story and he what he was doing was wanting me to document, do a verbal document or oral documentation of his event and I had to then burn it off on a CD and send it up to him up in Palm Island because he then had it for his library. Which That's fantastic. Is, yeah, so it's an unedited uh, uh, breakdown of his version of what happened during that day. But anyway, he, was, he consequently was put in jail and um, served time. And also there was incredible uh, behaviour, uh, negative behaviours and uh, 
towards the Palm Island, his family and all the rest of it. He took he action. guns at children's heads. Yeah, yeah, I know. And he took action against the uh, Queensland police and he won. He won this week. And uh, they've been ordered to pay his family $220,000 for the uh, insult and uh, horror that uh, they experienced. Also, Racist. after he left jail as well, they put on all these gag orders about him mm. not being able to speak, which really just shows how important he was and how he's a leader, really. Oh, he is. He, he's, a, he's a significant uh, Indigenous leader, uh, Lex Watton. He's a hero, and it was vindicated in the... Uh, White Australian courts this week uh, that uh, the Queensland uh, police acted in a racist manner. Dun, 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 dun. God, it takes them a long time to, you know, speak common sense. <laughs> anyway, so that's a grand victory. I think so, anyway. And there was a third victory for the, um, well, it's a semi-victory, we'd have to say. I, if anybody's been watching uh, from afar the stuff that's hand, been happening in uh, Standing Rock in America. Now, we know that Indigenous peoples of the world have decided that they are in a last-ditched effort to save the world. Their job is anyone who is an Indigenous person who is connected uh, politically uh, have decided, uh, in as all the ones that I've ever met, have decided that they their job, their job is to protect the earth. God, that sounds like a tiring job. Well, yeah, yeah. But they... It's a big job. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big job. Anyway, there uh, and one of these stands has of recent uh, months has been this uh, major uh, gathering of uh, indigenous people in America and their supporters uh, against a oil pipeline, oil gas pipeline across the Missouri River, and it's been massive. And the police, a paramilitary-type police, have been um, heaping violence on them. Uh, the uh, And just recently, thousands of veterans have uh, congregated in support mm. to the uh, Indian um, uh, nations that have collected there to uh, protect the land and the water. Interesting phenomenon. I remember the same thing happening yeah, during Occupy when they came to evict them. Um, the cops ended up beating up a whole bunch of veterans and, of course, there was the veteran, I've forgotten his name, the 24-year-old who was hit in the head with a tear gas canister. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, the fight's on, you know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, unsettled... Uh, uh, politics going on in America, as we're obviously aware. But anyway, the fight over the pipeline is now shifting from the protest camps to federal court courtrooms and regulators in Washington. Um, the federal government said it would not allow a crucial section of the pipeline to cross under the Missouri River and ordered up a long environmental review to search for alternative routes. So that is being called a victory of sorts. Right. So what are they what's the next steps? 
the well, protests. that's the thing. That's I don't thing. know. Uh, we're hoping that we might be able to give you a report about this. Vince Emmanuel from, uh, that we've been talking to about the lead up to uh, the uh, Trump victory, uh, who I'll have to say got it right. <laughs> one of the my, one of my listeners said to me, "My God, he got it all right." <laughs> I know it feels like, oh no, it's all going horribly wrong. Like he said it would, <laughs> just like he said it would. Anyway, uh, he's one of the veterans. Uh, it started off as two thousand veterans, turned up, uh, turned, ended up four thousand. Uh, he has been mentioning that uh, there is uh, some division regarding uh, strategies uh, in regards to the. Uh, uh, some some of the elders are saying, "Oh well, we've won and we can move off." But other um, factions within the uh, Indian communities have been saying that they're not entirely convinced. So we might be lucky enough to get some words from Vince uh, before the Christmas break. But we have to finish that off there on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim with our little victory dance, and move on. <laughs> you to... can't see it, but yeah, that's right. This is the week that was. A weak solidarity pricky team listener went in his invaluable advice program to big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull and the team, which, back in tiny a bit more for the boss's big supremo day, was Team True Blue Aussie, Team True Blue Aussie. Tiny's key advice uh, this week, we've got to talk about the issues that they will understand, issues that they will understand. Good to see a man who took his own advice because people obviously understood the issues he talked about, which explains the back in Tiny's big Supremo Day bit. And given Tiny's tiny talk, people understood included climate change is crap, climate change is crap. Surprised he's mildly upset, Malcolm may scupper his grand plan to address the crap, the Green Army. Tiny just loved train killer nomenclature, didn't he? May scupper to save 350 mil to pay for the extra 100 mil Malcolm promised the Greens in return for one of the deals last week, the backpacker tax deal, thereby saving 250 mil in the process. No loss, because it's just 250 mil from the environment program, and perhaps they can honour Tiny by rebadging the land care program as the land army program, or Mal's Raiders, or acknowledge the Greens. Richard's Raiders, that's alliterative. Mal's Military Marauders, even better. Unfortunately, Mal's Minders, the giant mines determining policy, are marauding on the climate environment front. Upset that a review of the current policy, direct inaction, might lead to something as dangerous as a policy. One of those giant mind wise policy setters, set a mind as Corey St. Bernardi, said reviewing climate change crap policy by including in the terms of reference the outrageous possibility that big polluters may have to pay to pollute rather than being paid to was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And coming from Corey, that's saying something. The current seem to be doing something while doing nothing just to appease those few people who believe in the crap. Paying big polluters a fortune to big pollute is working a treat, they acknowledged. Conceding with the Minister for Big Polluters, Josh Prydem Icebergs, that other minor government responsibilities like education, health, housing, transport, welfare, well, not corporate welfare, of course, which benefits all of us, will have to be slashed to provide the important trillions to pay the big polluters to keep big polluting. 
But if the crap isn't crap and dem icebergs are frying, nonetheless, Josh would have felt the iceberg bit cold as, as Malcolm tossed him overboard into the freezing Antarctic political turbulence. Josh making the big, big mistake of suggesting just maybe a review of climate policy should just perhaps, not to be taken too seriously, but just perhaps include charging big polluters a little fee if they big, big, big pollute. Sending poor Corey and the team into a frenzy, their temperatures rising at the thought that people might think the planet's temperature was doing likewise. Thus, that man of Principal Malcolm caught poor Josh unawares and shoved him into the briny. There is no way I would support the position I used to support. Malcolm was a true leader. Let me make it clear, everything's on the table in this review, other than any risk of big polluters paying to big pollute. And that's obviously my position. Direct in action. Paying the big polluters to big pollute will allow us to meet our commitments to pay the big polluters to big pollute. Josh echoed before Malcolm ordered him to go and dry himself and stop flooding the room. Uh, But I did, Josh blurted. Then where did all this water come from? Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist who knows there is no such thing as climate change, knows 99.9% of climate scientists have no idea what they're talking about, said Tiny had originated the review back then in his big supremo bit, but only to prove direct action, what direct inaction was working and nothing more needed to be done. Interesting comments, seeing the usual suspect columnist says there's no problem to address, so what are direct action in action is working and nothing more need be done working against? I hope he's not suggesting there is a problem it's working against, because surely so wise a man wouldn't be caught in a contradiction, would he? And no doubt his ideological acolyte, Corey, would include this decision over in the US of the UN of the US of the world not to run the North Dakota pipeline through Standing Rock Sioux lands and sacred sites as yet another one of the dumbest things he's ever heard, would echo the sensible reaction of energy transfer partners. This purely political decision flies in the face of common sense and the rule of law, our caring business class law accusing big supremo Barack for change, change, change of pandering to the extreme left, proving all those Native Americans are extreme left and those 2,000 train killer veterans, or vets as they call them over there, who joined the protest are extreme left. Exactly. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Corey looked distressed. Still, there's hope for common sense and the rule of energy transfer partners' law, the new big supremo Donald Tramble the poor himself. Speaking of law, congratulations to big state supremo who, who, known by the well-deserved pejorative Dan, for caving into, or sorry, sorry, seeing the light as shone by Lord Rupert of Wapping, who through his Wapping sin has made it clear society lives in terror as evil criminals get away with. Many given sentences with a release date, bail, parole and other judicial abuses, judicial and social weakness, not that caving in, done it again, sorry, seeing the light has helped the pejorative. The whopping sin still ran a cartoon making Dan out to be the irresponsible. It has declared him every day since the people abused democracy and got the last election wrong.
Well, every day except Christmas Day, given he now has the Good Friday edition, nobody reads. Still, it'll be a boon for the private companies who run our prisons and the construction industry building more prisons as the overcrowded become even more overcrowded and all the extra sorry, forces of law and order the government will release onto the streets to preserve the peace, abate that terror by arresting dangerous criminals like African kids committing serious offences such as walking down the street to buy a carton of milk. And a boon to those companies protecting us through guns, batons, sharp boots, tasers, capsicum spray, handcuffs and all the paraphernalia our proud forces of law and order strapped to their bodies like suicide bombers. But we know in this case they are making it safe for us to go out on the streets again. Lord Rupert ran this big picky the other morning of all these coppers brimming with all that peaceful equipment, guns, tasers, spray, batons, smiling at us reassuringly. And I thought, don't smiling, heavily armed coppers make us feel secure. Thank you, hoo-hoo, also known as Dan, but bad luck. It hasn't made Lord Rupert any friendlier to your out-of-control socialism. Bit of unfortunate juxtapositioning Monday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. Two P3 stories, those items which made the news. Employers have ripped off, Capitalist Review's words, ripped off $4.6 billion from workers through withholding superannuation, including for workers who have made salary sacrifices pocketed by their caring, and separately, large multinational caring employers evading $3 billion or so in tax, although a Tax Justice Network spokesperson said $3 bill would be a conservative estimate. It is important the tax office estimate how much tax that is cheated by multinational corporations is recoverable, he stressed. Thought we'd help him out for his benefit. Our week that was estimate, zilch, zero, naught. That range springs to mind. But the juxtaposition misfortune? Opposite page, think piece if it could so be called, by one of their arch-conservative commentators telling us the government will be flat out over the break, showing how it fights to eradicate problems that cost the economy, or rather, one problem. The massive tax avoidance, the cheating of workers, I hear. Well, no, wrong. Evil union thuggery. Well, the need to curb union excesses and thuggish behaviour, she wrote. Those excesses, she noted, headed by evil unions demanding pay rises. Bit surprised she's upset at that, because it would uh, surely help overcome the problem they keep telling us of slow wages growth. We'd think they'd be thankful, evil unions addressing an acknowledged problem in the greatest little economic order of them all. But on the positive side, got a feeling those multinational tax dodges and super rip-off caring employers generally can relax and enjoy their festive season, although some might say every season is their festive season. Not so festive, parents who discover their offspring are all idiots, sinking in the educational mire, leading to a sigh of relief from the Minister for Stupidity, Simon, burning them. And to think we might have wasted money on the, on the little idiots, that this proves the money would have been gonski, while his shadow, Tania Blubbersick, put the socialist position. More than ever, this report shows why we must support our filthy rich private schools. Upsetting the filthy rich would make us the idiots. 
finally, picky this week of Donald Trample the Poor and his offsider Kellyanne Conlems the Way, she dressed as Superwoman or Wonder Woman or whatever at a Heroes and Villains party and I thought, I wonder who the heroes were. Good morning. Workers of the world unite. In this climate of divide and conquer, it's time for us to take to the streets and defend multiculturalism and diversity. Victoria Trades Hall and a coalition of trade unions are organising a global street party and you're invited. Saturday the 10th of December. Rallying at the State Library at 12pm, then marching to Trades Hall for a street party on Ligon Street. There'll be bands, rides for the kids, music and tonnes of food. There'll also be some political forums about race, racism and how to fight back. This event is brought to you by Trades Hall, NTEU, the ETU, the AMIEU, the AMWU, the CWU, the ASU, Geelong Trades Hall, Ballarat Trades Hall and Australia Asia Worker Links. Workers of the world are united and will never be defeated. For more information, contact Matt Kunkel on 0405 748 Global Street Party, Saturday the 10th of December. State Library at 12pm. A 3CR supporter. And you are on 3CR with Annie and Kim and it's Solidarity Breakfast. Are you there, Noah? I am here. Thank you, Annie. <laughs> we Good caught morning. you on the hop. Yes, well, yes, my memory these days, as I get older, <laughs> I tend to get more and more things that I'm doing. So, But I am here. Yes, that's right. Uh, there might be a little bit of background noise, but it shouldn't be too much of an interruption, I hope. Yeah, great. And uh, this is the last uh, t- uh, time for the year that we'll hear your voice, Noah. So I'm glad we were able to catch you. Yes, yes, I'm glad too. It, it's been a momentous year in a whole range of ways, not all positive. Oh, that's for sure. Unfortunately. <laughs> that's right. It's been actually so let hard. Let me start, yeah. if you don't mind, can I start with something that I came across yesterday on the news on uh, Radio National? Uh, our friend who has just been elected to the US presidency uh, has announced his Labor, his Secretary of Labor. Oh, no. It, I, the, I can't recall his name, um, but he is the um, head, he owns, um, a fast food franchise. Oh. And his belief, according to the story that they told yesterday, and they did have a little bit of an excerpt of a talk that he'd given after he was... Uh, um, announced as the uh, new Secretary of Labor, is that minimum wage wages destroy job growth. And that if someone is wor- willing to work for a dime, then uh, that person should be free to do so. He did say he was free to do so. As we know, most women on minimum wage or below... Uh, sorry, most people on minimum wage or below are women. So, in fact, it's usually not a he, it's a she. Um, and they're usually... Uh, unable to um, uh, collectively bargain or do any have any rights at all at work, and they're exploited in ter- and he thinks this is fine. So it's good news for uh, um, low-paid workers in the US that their pay might actually become even lower. Now, the good news, or I guess the one bit of good news, is that a lot of minimum wage is actually set by the state, yeah, by states in the US. So... Um, he may not actually be able to get his way because uh, I think, from what I can tell, after doing a bit of research, um, state provisions or laws and regulations actually 
um, uh, uh, have a greater authority than federal laws in this area. And perhaps there could be some sort of revival of the Fight for 15 movement, which is yes, sorely yes. needed. Absolutely. I mean, the, the economic rationale, the economic logic of higher wages is impeccable. It is impeccable. You pay people more, they spend more, it creates more demand, more demand creates more jobs, more jobs creates... I mean, there is a whole set of um, problems around sustainability and a whole range of other things, but in terms of just the general economic logic of minimum wage or higher wages, it is impeccable and has been for a long time. So, you know, the, the fact that we have an orthodoxy now that says that people should be paid, you know, that markets should set the uh, rate of pay and it should go as low as the market will allow it to is just economically irresponsible. I suppose there's so many, such a concentration now of monopolies that no one capitalist wants to pay for this, but it would actually make economic sense even under capitalism as a whole. If you do, they know that actually spending is a problem. People are not spending their money. Well, Well, the market contracts... The market contracts. It's just obvious. Well, we get an accumulation of wealth, and when you get accumulation of wealth and a concentration of capital, then less money is spent because as that capital concentrates, uh, those people have a maximum amount of spend that never changes. So if you earn a million bucks a year, you may spend 250000 If you earn $3 million, you'll still spend $250,000. Ludicrous. So uh, whereas if you earn... You know, thirty grand, you'll spend all thirty. If you earn forty, you'll suddenly spend forty. Um, so, you know, the circulation of capital when you raise people's incomes is actually, you know, well proven in economic. Um, you know, the trickle down is actually rubbish. Uh, money trickles up, and it happens well, for 150 years. I mean, it's obvious. Yeah. I mean, and the other yeah. thing is that uh, isn't it interesting that the scum really does rise rise to the top? America proves oh. it. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, look, I, 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 don't agree, I don't disagree at all. I mean, he's just an awful person in a whole range of ways. And Now, one of the interesting stats is that 53% of white women voted for Trump. You know, that, that is an incredible... And 43% of those, almost one in two, had a college education. So it goes against all the stereotypes uh, yeah. and all the expectations that women, especially educated women, would vote for Hillary Clinton. But the prejudices and the patriarchy in the U.S. is so embedded that women would prefer to uh, vote for a man who is incredibly misogynist and, um, you know, and, and takes great pride in his uh, objectification of women um, rather than, uh, than for a woman. I mean, I, you know, Clinton's campaign had a whole range of problems. But at the end of the day, um, the vote for Trump by white women it was really a vote for patriarchy and for um, for misogyny. There's yeah, no, no yeah. It's, it. it's, it's disgusting, isn't it? It, it? it actually disgusts me. And it was one of the things that I actually pointed out. I really do think that uh, the idea of uh, Americans voting for a woman to become president is almost like hell will freeze over. Yeah, yeah. It, well, uh, she did receive more of the popular vote. She did. She did. Yes, yeah, that is right. Um, and I don't think we should ignore that at all. Um, it is an important thing to keep in mind. But um, given how far ahead she seems to be, what, uh, 
two months or three months out from the end of the campaign, um, it was still a stunning reversal. but also, I'll have to say too that uh, there's been articles being written uh, by journalists uh, around that the fact that the people that uh, uh, Trump has gone, uh, pulled around him, or you know who were his supporters, because he's only he's only a pimple on on a bum basically. He's a he's a pimple on a uh, rather appalling body, uh, and. Um, Support the supporters of Trump are the people, the corporations that have actively created misinformation for decades through pretend grassroots organisations and uh, th- uh, supposed think tanks, but which really are lobbyists, political lobbyists. I, I agree, but in this case, I think. There was a lot of lukewarm reception amongst some of those for Trump because he wasn't the standard Republican candidate. Um, in many ways, he's not the conservative candidate that um, those corporations wanted. There was, I mean, I read a number of things. I, I mean, I don't disagree with you. The, the general problems in the US around um, the, the perceptions of the economy, race, um, immigration, uh, climate or environmental policy, all those have come out, and anti-intellectualism and a whole range of other things have come out of these think tanks. Uh, there's a great book by Oreskes and oh, I'm just trying to think of the other author's name, um, called The Merchants of Doubt. I think we've spoken about it before. Um, there's a film as well. Them. The Merchants of Doubt is fantastic. Yeah, so as you know, it's, it's, it, it talks about the mainly about climate change denialism and how, um, you know, sort of that's propagated through these think tanks and other organisations. But what's really interesting is that they trace this back to the early 1960s and the convergence of Cold War sort of uh, concerns about communism uh, and also the uh, tobacco lobby's attempt to fight science regulation of smoking and... In the mid-1960s, according to these authors, and, you know, I think the evidence is, 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 is uh, pretty, very credible, um, they realised that neoliberalism and free market um, ideology provided them with the perfect argument for, um, for fighting both science and regulation, and that is if you leave things to the market and give people the freedom to choose then everything will be okay. Well, that was the argument they made in the 60s and 70s about smoking, um, that it's not the role of government to intervene in people's private choices, that the market should be allowed to um, to deal with these things, that, that people should have freedom. And that is the core fundamental arguments around uh, neoliberalism. And it's interesting that in some way they were given life by large tobacco companies trying to protect their profits and trying to kill people. And trying to kill people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is, you know, absolutely the same as the argument proposed here around fascism and free speech. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, didn't Google say if you say a big enough lie, you uh, often enough people will believe it? Well, for yeah. me, that's what neoliberalism is. It's the biggest lie we could possibly tell, but it's people a... tell it often enough and with... Uh, authority and um, like certainty 
that people have just bought into it without yeah, yeah, yeah. less and less people. Are, I think there's a challenge to it, but it's still there as the core fundamental hegemonic or orthodox idea around how we should um, organise our economy and our society. It's very interesting because I think it goes... I've seen them do it with... They use uh, Charles Darwin and that whole idea of survival of the fittest and try and apply it to capitalism. But it makes no sense because Darwin actually... He barely... He says that once because he was pushed to putting it into the book, but that's not what Darwin said. He actually didn't even use the slogan. Yeah, it's actually symbiosis. That's actually how people get along and uh, that's how, you know, the mechanism of evolution. But uh, it's amazing the way that they try and twist it. Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, you know, Darwinism became the um, motif or the the ideological propellant for people who wanted to maintain slavery, racism and colonialism. That's how it it went from being an idea about... um, you know how the how the world evolved into one uh, that we understand it today around social Darwinism and, as you said, survival of the fittest and this idea that genetic mutation always uh, produces the most uh, uh, sort of efficient um, species. Oh, it's also uh, the reasoning we're... behind the dis- uh, the genocide of Aboriginal people in Australia. Indeed, indeed. I mean, the, you know, social Darwinism became the, the fundamental. Uh, foundation of colonialism and racism in the second half of the um, 20th century. And Darwin was not a social Darwinist, no. as you said. Um, he was actually quite a committed Christian in a whole range of ways and believed in equality and a whole range of other things that were far more uh, Victorian. Um, he, was a, I, he was a, you know, a typical Victorian in a whole range of ways. He was actually um, a scientist, right? I mean, he actually was a scientist. He he was a racist, but he was a racist in the sense that all Victorians were racist, Mm. Um, not in the sense that we understand racism today. And they're different forms of racism. You know, it was a sense that all people in the world were different and they all had characteristics. Um, We could understand those as being part of their racial or genetic composition. Um, But that didn't necessarily make them superior or inferior. It just meant there was a difference. That mm. mutated in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, well, it was already mutating, sorry, in the second half of the 19th century. It was already mutating in the 18th century into a belief in a hierarchy of races and of in, inferior and superior races. But I don't think Darwin himself believed that in the same way that social Darwinists came to believe it um, later on. And, you know, that was the premise on which the Holocaust was uh, perpetrated. Oh. Uh, you know, so and we still have it today. I mean, there is, you know, very much this. I watched to my, you know, I watched First Contact, the SBS program. Yes, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, and the first episode of the first series, I watched it on Thursday night, and I was just appalled at the blatant racism and ignorance of the people that they had chosen uh, to participate in the show. It was just appalling, the sort of attitudes towards Indigenous people, lack of understanding and compassion. And I've got to say, it made my stomach churn. I, and I know they choose these people for a particular reason, but nonetheless, I don't think they're that uh, much of an aberration. Um, oh, we're not any that. A society is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, yeah, I don't know if these are the weakest link. That's my point. Oh, you mean these you, there's even... 
There's even commonly held views. Mm. Oh my God! Okay, yeah. we're all on uh, Solidarity Breakfast three CR with Annie and Kim, and we're talking with Dr. Noah Pasil. That's a, that's horrifying. I actually avoided it because I couldn't bear the thought of it. To tell you the truth, yeah, I thought. Of, so you took a bullet for I, us. Yeah, so and I'll watch a few more episodes to to, to see whether my um, uh, sort of uh, first impressions are, are correct. But I do feel that the motif of the program is, yeah, ab- good Aborigines are people who have become like us, mm. and bad Aborigines are not. And we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't uh, uh, stereotype all Aboriginals as the same because some have actually assimilated, and we should um, celebrate that. That, I think, is the story that they're trying to tell. Yeah, I thought yeah. so too. I, I took that from the pictures and the, the whole yeah. sort of – so, yeah. You're, it's you're... very interesting because someone did – I think it was published in New Matilda. Maybe it was Ben Eltham. But they did an analysis yeah. of the whole corpus of Andrew Bolt, and which I thought was very interesting. See, um, he took a bullet for his too. Took a bullet. Yeah, actually, they, they did it with <laughs> natural language processing, so they probably didn't have to read the whole thing. But yeah. they proved – well, they showed that, you know – that every time, you know, Andrew Bolt, despite, you know, he's constantly saying that he's anti-racist, every time he mentions an Aboriginal person, it's in a negative way, unless he's comparing what he thinks is a good Aboriginal to a bad Aboriginal. That's the only yeah, yeah. time he ever uses positive language around Indigenous people. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. I disgusting. Mean, he, well, you know, he, he is an organic intellectual of the, um, I would say the... Uh, Murdoch ruling class. There's no doubt about it. He's a mouthpiece for the most, I think, the most um, prejudiced and uh, um, we- political wedge-driven uh, journalism that I've that I've read. Uh, he he is really, I think, the worst journalist in Australia. And also, they push uh, him unbelievably. Like it's quite clear that he is a paid-up yeah. member because. The fact that his rather boring program on mainstream TV was then catapulted to Sky and all the rest of it. I mean, he bores people to death, but yeah, they're not well, going to allow him to disappear from the scene because he fulfills a particular character role in the political landscape of Australia. Yes, he does. He does. And he distracts people from the real issues. That's exactly uh, right. I don't even read him because yeah. I give him no oxygen at all. But uh, yeah. he uh, quite clearly has an effect because that's his role to have an effect. He does advertise things for the left sometimes, though, by denouncing them. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yeah. we like characters. Yeah. We like characters. We like the Baroque. And uh, that's where he fits. But I was quite interested. I don't know what your opinion. I know this is a bit left field in regards to what we discussed we wanted to talk about. But... Uh, Nick Xenophon and the and uh, Hinch, Darren Hinch, as senators, um, uh, auctioning off a, workers' rights, uh, negotiating workers' rights out of the picture for spurious reasons. What's your view on this? Um, I actually haven't come across this story, uh, um, Annie, and I'm appalled if it you know, that they would. But in a way, um, you know, there there is a... Yeah, Xenophon, I find... I don't know Darren Hinch that well. I guess he's really a figure in Victoria rather than New South Wales. Um, and he has been... I know he had a national program for a while, but um, 
uh, he's really his. I guess his fame is down there more than. Well, I think else. I'm thinking it's the principle, the principle that you can no- negotiate off workers' rights at all. Well, that's right. I mean, I, but uh, I guess that's what the political class think they can do. That they have this right to uh, determine uh, what historically, uh, at least for the last hundred years, has been determined uh, collectively by people in the workplace. And uh, that is a really worrying aspect of our political system at the moment, that, um, you know, we're going further and further since, since you know, we have to say since the Accord, um, there's been an increasing uh, marginalisation of uh, workers' ability to, to negotiate their own rights. Um, you know, and Howard's um, work, work choices was the, uh, you know, the most agrarious form of, or example of that. And we know what happened to Howard as a result. So now I think elites are looking at more insidious ways of getting those same uh, policies through. We've seen it with the, um, you know, in a, in, I mean, Labor didn't really wind them back all that much in the first place. So well, that's right. Here's our party that represents the workers, supposedly, and to protect, mm. and you know, is, is elected to pr- protect their rights. And what do they do when they get into power in 2007? They water down work choices. They don't abolish it, but in many ways, they keep the philosophy of it alive. Um, yeah, and, and and it's like you were saying before, making uh, the the whole agenda, which uh, of a system that the economic system that's failing, uh, making it. Uh, as if it's the only way things can be. Yes, yeah, indeed. We're, we're, we're told that there is, there, you know, and Morrison's doing it at the moment with his, you know, Australia's economy is in uh, dire need of uh, more austerity. Well, in fact, you know, with, uh, history tells us that when the economy is starting to contract, government should spend more. Yeah, and not only that, it's not that he's an incompetent, no, he's not incompetent. He's very competent. The, the, you know, he's very competent at setting an agenda or, or working through an agenda that is very much in the favour of uh, um, mainly investor capital. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's not even... I mean, I would say retail capital and manufacturing capital in Australia uh, would be aghast at these policies if they actually thought about them from their own interests. You know, the petty bourgeois um, class, uh, you know shop owners, uh, restauranteurs, if they were thinking about their own interests, they would be voting against any attempt to restrict government spending. I think Um, it was interesting because a bunch of those sort of people were actually for the mining super profits tax. And I think that's that's one reason that Rudd thought he could maybe, you know, do something in the interests of Australian capitalism as a whole, but the mining sector's too strong. Yeah, and I think we're seeing this wedge uh, or this... um, um, uh, polarisation or uh, division within the uh, sort of capitalist class. And uh, Trump is an example of it. You know, Mm. there's uh, investor capital and uh, uh, sort of big monopoly capital who are supporting him. But I think Clinton got a lot of support from traditional capital, the more nationalist uh, um, uh, sort of uh, bourgeois class in the US, which usually has some progressive politics, but also, you know, social policies or politics, but uh, quite um, economically conservative ones as well. 
Well, um, we I, live in we live in interesting times, Noah. I actually think quite uh, dark times, to be honest. And, yeah, uh, I think so too. You know, uh, I think we're on the um, on the precipice in a whole range of ways, and it'll be interesting to see how humanity pulls, which way it pulls in the next few years. Because if we're seeing a shift to the right, and we have to take some, I think we have to take a little bit of. Um, a bit of a sigh of relief from what happened in Austria during the week. Um, but all, all things point to a whole wave of right-wing, very right-wing racist governments in Europe by the end of next year. France, Holland, um, and we already have one in the, US, in the UK. Um, so, you know, there is a real danger that uh, uh, we are really moving into a very, very um, serious crisis political uh, crisis as well as an economic one. Okay, well, we have to finish up. We have to finish up here. So uh, we're going to have to finish on a downbeat, but uh, happy Christmas to your family, uh, Noah, and uh, thank Thank you you very much for contributing to Solidarity Breakfast throughout this year, and we'll hear from you next year. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Look forward to it. All the best. Happy and safe holidays to everyone, to you both and your families and to all our listeners. Oh, thank you. Thank you. All right. All the best. Bye. That was Noah Basile, and it's always great to hear from him. Uh, Solidarity Breakfast has come to an end this morning. We uh, went to Europe. We looked at Spain and Italy. We uh, followed it up with a rave about the victories over the week. We then went on to This Is The Week That Was, and I'm afraid we have to leave on a downbeat because... Solidarity breakfast well, we didn't has talk been about right. The, we didn't talk about the ecological crisis just no, to no, further right. hammer it into the ground. That's right. But we will go out with uh, David Robick's uh, Eureka Stockade song. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields Was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation Mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer And cops were getting worse the diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From 20 different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. Tried to divide them Giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it They said it's all of us or none They built a stockade While the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross They'd stand together and break the license laws 
From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.